Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. Find your place there in Esther chapter number 2. Esther chapter 2, we continue in um, what has been, a, 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 I think, an intriguing journey so far in, in just a couple chapters through the book of Esther. Uh, this story of Esther, I think, is it's so different for us. I, I, if you are anything like me and you, you grew up in church, unfortunately, I feel like the story of Esther that was told me is not the biblical story that is actually told. Today, we, we pick up at the end of chapter 2 as we see the story unfolding What I'm going to do today is I want to, at some point here, I want to give you four statements that tell the story, and then I want to give you four application statements at the end of the message. Have you ever ever been somebody who's given yourself to a a, a series, a TV series, um, some kind of a series where there's a good guy and then there's there's maybe a villain or a lot of villains? And are you anything like me? Like, I check out of series after episode, like, two or three. Because I feel like they're going to make an 18-episode season that we could have resolved in episode one. <laughs> right? Like, you just want me to watch. I just want to fix the problem. There's a, every episode, you know, the situation, you think it's going to get resolved and it just gets worse. And you just sit there and you become annoyed and agitated. And now they got you hooked. It's like cliffhanger. You're just waiting to see what they're going to do to fix it. That's kind of the story of Esther. It's a story that you're like, can we just fix this now? Esther 3 has that similar feel. The story is about to get really, really ugly. As if it wasn't already ugly in chapter 1 and 2. It's going to get worse. You and I, are, we want to read this and we want to like wave the warning lights. We want to fix the situation that seems easily fixable. But as Esther, the end of 2 and into chapter 3, it begins to take a scary turn. What we're going to learn today and we're going to find today that in the story, the villains are going to be front and center for us. Now these are villains that if you know the story of Esther, you know these names. You know who they are. You know what they're about. And we need to remember something about Esther, about the book of Esther. We need to remember that these villains are not working for themselves. They're working within the framework of a specific kingdom. Now, if you've been a part of this series, whether in person or online, you probably have a basic working understanding of a, a, an interpretation of the book of Esther of this story is about two kingdoms. Two kingdoms that are at war. Now, it's not the Persian kingdom and the Greek kingdom and the Persian empire and the Greek empire. The Persian empire is a front for the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, as we've called it. And this kingdom is working to try to defeat, working overtime to defeat the other kingdom, and that is the kingdom of God. The writer of Esther is giving us the picture from beginning to end of 
how the kingdom of darkness is trying to defeat the kingdom of God. And really, as we get into chapter 3, if we're paying attention, and we, we actually see that the story here, the, the, the kingdom of darkness, their plan to defeat the kingdom of God, it's solid. It's really solid. It's a good, it's a good plan. Now, it's not good because it's morally good. It's absolutely evil. But it seems that if the kingdom of Satan wants to stop the kingdom of God from bringing about a Messiah who's going to crush the head and, and defeat Satan and his kingdom, then this plan is, is, is excellent for that purpose. So today, we're going to see that plan told us. It's going to be given to us. How does the kingdom of darkness, how is Satan going to defeat God's kingdom? Well, let's look at it together. And as I've done over the last few weeks, I just want to work through the story with you, if I may. So try to track with me. This is not a bedtime story, so please don't go to sleep, all right? Four statements. First one, number one. Mordecai, very simply, I'm not clever today. There's nothing creative or cute. Mordecai sits in the king's gate, all right? Here's where the story starts today. Mordecai sits in the king's gate. Look at verse number 19 of chapter 2. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. Now, if you're hearing the message and you're just coming into the book of Esther with us for the first time, you're coming in, uh, the story's already started, but here's where we find it. There's a moment where there appears that all those young girls that were brought to Shushan are brought again a second time. Now, they may not be sent home, but it, it appears that the king, Ahasuerus, isn't satisfied with just having Esther as his wife. He's going to now pick his second favorite. That seems to happen here. There's a second time when they're brought before the king. Either way, in that moment, Esther's cousin, if you remember, Mordecai, is he is sitting here at the king's gate. He seems to have a royal title. We don't know what that job description means. We don't know what his role is. But he seems to be working for the king. Verse 20 tells us something we already knew. Esther had concealed, continued to conceal her Jewish identity. See, she was a, she was a good Jewish, obedient girl to the, to the man that had adopted her, verse 20 tells us. And this simply tells us that she was brought up to be obedient and she did what she was told. Mordecai had told her, don't tell anybody that you're a Jew. And so she had kept it quiet. From there, the story seems to transition a little bit and we get this incredible moment of something that happens at the king's gate. Look at verse 21. In those days, whatever days those are, whatever time it is, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Big Than and Teresh, of those which kept the door were wroth, and sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the thing was made known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen. And Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Now what happens here is Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate, he's filling his role, and there's two other guys, maybe some co-workers of Mordecai, Big Fan and Teresh. These guys are mad at the king. We don't know why they're mad at the king, but they're mad at the king. And they devise a plan to assassinate Ahasuerus. The king. The, the most powerful man in the world. Mordecai, somehow, we don't know how, but it's made known to him. He learns about this plan. And he runs to his cousin, his adopted daughter, and he tells her she's the queen. 
He says, these guys want to kill the king. Tell the king. So we learn that an investigation takes place. And after the investigation, both men are hung. It's over. Now, it was normal in those days is these kings would, they would have all these different moments like this written in a book. And later, one of the, one of the, the people that would sit by the king would read the book back to them. And he would be like, oh, I forgot. I wanted to do this or I wanted to do that for that person. Well, Esther certified in that moment that Mordecai was the one who foiled the plot. And she tells the king, it's Mordecai that has saved your life. And you can be sure that Mordecai's name was written in the book as the person who discovered the plot and saved the king's life. And this would mean for us, right? This would mean surely that Mordecai would get some honor. Surely maybe he would be promoted. Mordecai would get something of a benefit for saving the king's life, right? Well, chapter 3 in verse 1 tells us about the promotion. It says this, After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Mordecai. Actually, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. Mordecai saves the king's life, but Mordecai's not going to get the promotion. Who's promoted? Well, that's the second statement. Haman is promoted. We don't even know who this guy is. He's not, the sa- he's not the guy that saved the king's life. Notice verse 1 of chapter 3. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. Now, why do we care who his father is? Why do we care who his people is? Well, the Jews read this and they see the irony in the moment. Mordecai had saved the king. And the king then promotes Haman. Haman, the son of Amadatha, the Agagite. Why does it matter that he's an Agagite? Well, again, the Jewish reader would say the Agagites are the descendants of our longtime tribal enemies, the Amalekites. These people hated the Jews. So the irony of the moment is Mordecai saves the king's life and the king promotes somebody who's an enemy of the Jews. Mordecai deserves a promotion. But instead it goes to somebody who hates the Jewish people. Verse 2, chapter 3 tells us, And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman. Why? For the king had so commanded concerning him. So not only has Mordecai been passed up, but the king makes a command that everyone must bow to Haman. And Mordecai has to bow to Haman. And the tension of the story is rising, right? Verse 2 continues to tell us, But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. He bowed not, nor did him reverence. You, see, you can see this moment building. Mordecai, is, for whatever reason, has drawn a line in the sand. He's not bowing to this guy. He's, he's probably, more likely as a Jewish man, he's not going to bow to somebody who's an Agagite, who's an enemy of the Jews. He's... Haman is not even Persian. He's not going to give him respect. Verse 3 tells us, Then the king's servants that were in the king's gates said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. Now stop right here for a moment. So see what's building here. 
the guys that work with Haman or Mordecai are saying, hey man, why aren't you standing? This is the command, right? Like, why are you not, why are you not bowing to this guy? Why are you not giving him the reverence he deserves? And Mordecai tells him, um, and, and by the way, they try to talk to him daily about it. Come on, just bow, just bow, just do this. It's not a big deal. And Mordecai says, no, I'm a Jew. I'm not bowing to this guy. So what do they do? They go to Haman. They go to Haman and they tell Haman that Mordecai is not bowing. And it seems to be that they're telling him of why Mordecai is not bowing, hoping that Haman doesn't see it and get mad and punish Mordecai. Well, verse 5 tells us what happens. Look at verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Now once Haman takes note of what's going on, He's full of wrath. And you can see this moment building, and, and not to embellish it, but, but quite possibly Haman is entering towards the gate of the palace, and he's paying attention now. He's, he's looking for Mordecai. And everybody else is bowing, but Mordecai won't bow. And verse 6 tells us that he wants to lay hands on Mordecai, but you don't lay hands on the guy that saved the king's life. You can't just take out Mordecai. His name's in a book that tells the king that he saved him from death. I mean, Haman's going to have to be a little more clever about this. You can't just kill Mordecai. He's a hero. His cousin is the queen. So what happens? Well, he's fuming mad. We find in the end of verse 6, Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. So what does he do? He hates, he hates Mordecai so much that he wants to kill every person connected to Mordecai in the whole kingdom. His plan, very simply, statement number three, is Haman plans to kill the Jews. Look at verse 7. In the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is the lot before Haman, from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. Now let me stop here for just a moment because the writer of Esther gives us a little dating here. Gives us a little dating of what's going on. This, 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 time, this, this time, the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Esther went into the king's palace in the, the seventh year, if you remember in chapter 2, the seventh year of the, the reign of Ahasuerus. Now it's the twelfth year. So Esther's been queen for five years. We don't know how long Haman's been in, in leadership, but, but, five, but, but, but five years Esther's been the queen. And whatever happens is he, they begin to cast pur. What, what is pur? It's, it's a form of lot casting that the Persians would often use to determine the day of death of somebody like a criminal. They would cast this pur, and, and, and it, would, it would be like drawing straws or rolling dice or, or pulling a number out of a hat. It would be that kind of a lot-casting idea. And what they do is they would cast the pur, and then they would mark days off until they got to the day that the pur had determined that this death should happen. So they, Haman and all these that are with him are casting pur, and they come to the moment. It's the 12th month, the month Adar. This is the... This is the time when the plan and to kill all the Jews is going to take place. And so next, Haman has to get the king on board. He's got his date. He knows when it wants, he wants it to happen. But he's got to get the king on board. So notice in verse 8. Are you tracking the story with me? And Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, so he goes to the king, 
He says, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of the kingdom, thy kingdom. And their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's profit. It is not for the king's profit to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the king or to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. Haman's plan is laid before the king. He wants the king to put out one of those famous laws of the Medes and the Persians, right? One of those laws that cannot be revoked. And he simply says, there's a certain people, no description, just a certain people. Their laws are different than ours, and they don't keep your laws, king. And so there's no reason to keep them around. In fact, there's no profits keeping them around. There's no reason to put up with them. They, don't, they have other laws. They're not your laws. Let's kill them. Haman isn't interested in manipulating the situation, right? He's not interested in presenting legitimate facts. I mean, God forbid we ever let facts get in the way of greed and hate, right? So, Haman asks that these certain people be destroyed. On top of that, one of the things Haman is specific about is how much money he's willing to pay for this proposal to happen. And the presentation is, let's pay this for people to kill. And then that money will eventually be brought back into the treasury. And so the king goes, oh good, more money for me. Haman is manipulating the situation. His hatred for these Jews is that intense. So notice what happens in verse 10. No questions asked. The king took his ring from his hand, gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Ready? The Jews' enemy. And the king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also, to do with them as it seemeth good to thee. This, I mean, really... Like, I don't know about you, but as I read this story, I, I think this might be the worst political leader in the ancient world. We got a guy who wants to destroy an entire group of people, no questions asked, no facts presented. And the king gives Haman his ring and says, do whatever seems right to you. No concern for life. No concern for the well-being of those in his kingdom. He doesn't care about the young ladies. He doesn't care about these people. He's willing to mistreat and abuse and slaughter genocide people. What kind of king is this? Verse 12. Then were the king's scribes called on the 13th day of the first month. And there was, certain, or there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants and to the governors that were over every province and to the rulers of every people of every province according to the writing thereof and to every people after their language in the name of King Ahasuerus was it written sealed and sealed with the king's ring and the letters were sent by post unto all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill and to cause to perish all Jews both young and old little children and women and one day even upon the 13th day of the 12th month which is the month Adar and to take the spoil of them for a prey a copy of the writing for a commandment to be given to every province was published unto all people that they should be ready against that day. You see what happened? This is a sanctioned mass genocide at the hands of Haman and by the authority of King Ahasuerus. And in, just to be clear, right, we're going to get this out to all people in their own language. It's that important that everybody in the kingdom knows that all the Jews are going to be destroyed and killed. And by the way, if you kill a Jew, you get to keep their stuff. We're going to pay you to do it, and then we're going to tax you after the fact. Crystal clear. Death for all Jews on the 13th day of the 12th month, Adar. 
And you and I sit here and go, what kind of evil is before us? What kind of evil is this? Consider for a moment, if you will, the lack of concern for life. What exactly have these Jews done? What have they done? One man won't bow before Haman, so all people got to be killed? Is that how this kingdom works? It appears, it appears, listen carefully, that of our two kingdoms, one kingdom is about to win the war. I mean, a, 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 an annihilated Jewish people means no Messiah, no Savior, no Jesus, and Satan wins the war. Well, the fourth statement I want you to see is, I just wanted you to see this last verse because it adds insult to injury. I want you to see, number four, the king and Haman drink, and the people are perplexed. Look at verse 15. The post went out, being hastened by the king's commandment. Got to get this out, hurry. And the decree was given in Shushan the palace. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Shushan was perplexed. Could you imagine that? The king and Haman are going, we're about to kill a bunch of people. Let's drink. Let's party. Let's laugh about this. And everybody else is going, what in the world is happening? Imagine being Jewish and you get to, you're standing before your family and you're reading this. On the 13th day of the 12th month, we're going to be dead. And you have a king and his second man laughing and drinking and parting over it. I would argue that this is one of the strongest pictures of evil that is before us. So what do you and I do? Like, I came to church, I came to church, Dustin, to get some encouragement. This is not encouraging. Well, let me try to offer you something today. How does this text fit within the storyline of the Esther and the whole Bible? We've asked that exact question every week. I mean, at this point, we have a tragic, awful story. We've got evil leadership. We have no hero yet. The one guy who seems to be a little bit of a hero who saves the king's life is passed over for somebody who wants to kill him. And we're beginning to learn what is fundamental to Scripture. Listen very carefully. God is working and in control even if you cannot see him. Say, I can't see him. I don't see him yet. God is working and in control even if you cannot see him. See, the Christian can look at the story and say, God is not present. God is nowhere to be found. But the Christian can also understand within the whole of Scripture that when we can't see God, the hiddenness of God, as C.S. Lewis says, the hiddenness of God does not mean the absence of God. God is alive and He is working and you can trust Him. You can trust Him. See, I give you that first because you might feel like your life has has 
anxiety and fear and evil all around and our world seems to be going crazy and people are going crazy. I mean, if you don't believe me, just scroll Twitter today. People are going crazy. But the Christian settles their hearts. That in the backdrop of everything around us, God is alive and He is working. We pillow our head at night knowing that God is sovereign over all. Numbers 23 tells us this. God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, I got some good news for you guys, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? You see, God has said that he is going to crush the head of the serpent. He will do it. Hath he spoken it? He'll make it good. When you don't see God, you can trust he's working. The psalmist said his faith was so strong in God's sovereignty. He said, thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can stop it. The, the, the Persians won't stop it. The, the Amalekites couldn't stop it. The Philistines couldn't stop it. The Canaanites couldn't stop it. The, the, the Romans won't stop it. By the way, I got good news for you. American culture won't stop it. It's an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endureth through all generations. Don't get too out of sorts. Here and out there. God is working. God is working. Number two. And it, an eclectic view today of some of the applications. Number two, it's a question. Are we seeking our own honor and glory? You say, why would he even ask that? Because Haman sure was seeking his own honor and glory, wasn't he? He was. In fact, he loves it so much that he asked the king to make a law to enforce to enforce and require people to honor him and to give him glory. He, he asked the king to make a commandment that everybody bows to him. But I need you to understand something. By the way, that pursuit is exactly what the kingdom of Satan is all about. From the beginning of that kingdom, it's been about its own glory. Satan is not about your honor and glory. He's about his. What is interesting, though, for you and I, we have to grapple with this a little bit, and we have to remember that we cannot consume ourselves with getting honor while simultaneously craving honor for God. You can't do it. If you care so much about honor, you will not care about God's honor. So the fair question to us, as we do heart work in our life, are we seeking our own honor and glory? Do I care? Do I care? Well, ask yourself honestly. Number one, do you care about God's glory or yours? It's a wrestle. This is a struggle for all of us. Are we seeking honor in a way that is hurting those around us? Sometimes we can be so pursuant of honor that we will be defaming and degrading people around us. Number three, do we care more when God's glory and honor, about God's glory and honor being impugned or ours? Do we care more about when God's glory and honor are impugned or ours? See, this is, this, is legitimate, this is legitimate heart work here. you got to ask yourself honestly, how much do I live my life for honor? And do I demand it? 
Here's what I will promise you. You live for God's glory and honor, and you will be honored by God. You'll be honored by God. Let me take you to number three. And I think, I don't think I could say this enough. I don't think I could say it enough. One cannot believe in human dignity and despise an entire group of people. One cannot believe in human dignity and despise an entire group of people. Listen very carefully. We should expect Haman to hate people. You know why? Because Satan hates you. He hates you. And we live in a day in a world where the world is grabbing a hold of this, this idea of dignity and honor. But, and that's because of the, the wiring that God has given them. They, we care about each other's honor and dignity. But as I mentioned last week, this Persian king, who's simply a puppet for the kingdom of Satan, doesn't believe in human dignity. He only cares about his own. Look how he treats Vashti or the hundreds of young girls that are brought to his palace. See, human dignity, human dignity cherishes and puts value on another person because that person, according to Scripture, is intrinsic with value before, before they are even born, even in the womb. That is the Christian worldview. And most Christians I know will go, amen. Here's where we have a problem. You ready? I'm going to take it further. Don't get offended yet. You cannot be pro-life in the womb and not be pro-life outside the womb. You can't. You can't only fight for the unborn and not care about the mistreatment of groups of people and hatred of groups of people. The Christian cannot do that consistently because both the unborn and the born have been made in the image of God. That is the Christian worldview. That's not even a debated point. Why Christians would give themselves to debate that, I don't even understand. We expect the kingdom of Satan to hate people. And now it seems that more than the church, the world the world seems to have a corner on fighting for human dignity while the church is silent. The church is silent. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tells us that God made man in his image. i got to hurry. There's not a person, group, ethnicity wherein the image of God does not exist. Therefore, it is unbiblical, unchristian, and anti-God to harbor racism, prejudice, or any kind of aggression in your heart against anyone. Against anyone. The American church has been way too silent about the sins of racism that have long existed in churches and in American society. You cannot, hear me very carefully, stay with me, don't, don't shut me off yet. You cannot believe that Jesus saves if he cannot save all. You cannot believe that he will save all if he doesn't love all. You cannot believe he loves all if he did not create all. So therefore, you and I as Christians would never be okay with the mistreatment and the, of, of people, the wickedness that has been prevalent in our country and around the world to people of color, if Jesus created, loves, and died for all people, and all God's people said, Amen. You can't. You can't. Because God is building his church through people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And why this would even be an issue for Christians, I don't understand. Why this would be a problem that a pastor would say this. You cannot love Jesus and his church and hate people. You can't. Number four. 
And by the way, that matters because Haman seems to hate a whole lot of people. And I'm amazed at how many Christians claiming to live in the kingdom of God live by the, by the virtue, so to speak, of the other kingdom. Number four, as you see one kingdom predominantly active in this story and around us, remind yourself that you're actually part of a greater kingdom. Listen very carefully. Why are we a part of a greater kingdom? Here's, here's the crux of this. We're a part of a greater kingdom because we have a greater king. You say, Why, how do you know we have a greater king? Listen very carefully. Follow me. Okay, I'm going to talk fast. This king, our king, created the world. But you and I are guilty of not following his laws and rules. This king had more of a reason to act against us than Ahasuerus had to act against the Jews. You see, we lived at war with our king, the king who created us. Like the two men in chapter 2 trying to assassinate Ahasuerus, you and I from birth lived in open rebellion seeking to, seeking to kill and dethrone our creator king from the throne of our life. That was our posture as unbelievers. This king's enemy, by the way, this king's enemy, our, our king, his enemy Satan, just like Haman did, constantly comes before him and he accuses us of wrong and of sin and of evil. And here's the great news for Christians today. Our king is not at all like Ahasuerus. If he was, he had every reason to eliminate us and sit down and have a drink. Because we did more against him than the Jews did to Ahasuerus. But listen very carefully. This is the Christian message. It is not the Jews that are killed. It is God's son that is killed. And he is the one who dies, right? He is the one who dies so that all of us guilty people can go free. See, our king is nothing like Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus takes money to destroy innocent people. But God gives Jesus to save guilty sinners. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. For all have sinned, Paul said. And come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And I saw this week on Twitter, somebody said this. They said, you know, I see Christians talk about Jesus dying for them. It really makes me feel bad for Jesus. Don't feel bad for Jesus. Don't feel bad for Jesus. As I told you from Philippians 2, God raised Jesus from the dead and has given Him a name that is above every name. See, Jesus, as the King of kings and the, and the Lord over all, will rule and reign for all eternity. And the good news for us is because we are united to Christ in his, in his finished work, in His resurrection, in His life, we're united with Him. We too will reign with Him. So don't feel bad for Jesus. He came and offered us life. And if you accepted this offer, you got and you received eternal life. That's what Jesus gave you. The kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of Satan is willing to kill an entire group of people and then laugh about it. The kingdom of God dies for guilty people in our place. Jesus in our place so that we can go free. The Christian message is unlike any message that this world understands. Because for many in this world, and I know that we have this heightened sense of morality now, for many in this world, 
what Ahasuerus and Haman do, it's not that big of a deal. I'm telling you what Jesus did is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. And because of, listen, because of the finished work of the cross and the empty tomb, you and I can look at the story that God is writing even today. God is the author of this grand story of redemption. And the story that God is writing says, you may not see him today. You may be wondering where he is. But the empty tomb and the cross and the sinless perfect life of Jesus tells you that God is always working. And if I can trust him in salvation, I can trust him right now. You can trust him right now. I wish I had all the answers for everything that this world is experiencing. I don't claim to be that guy. I don't claim to be able to answer all the nuanced questions. I do want to be the guy that says, I'm a part of a kingdom that's got a really awesome king. Let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about it. And this king, he is king over all. This king will have his day when every wrong is righted. When every problem is resolved. And I can't wait for that to happen. I can't wait for that to happen. Where's your hope today? Where's your confidence today? In Jesus? In Jesus? This story will shake your confidence. Pay attention out there long enough, your confidence will be shaken. Come to the word of God and your confidence will be grounded. Grounded. In a greater king. And in a greater kingdom. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.